Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Policy directors Brian McGuire and Drew Littman discussed the 2018 midterm elections in the House and Senate, including implications from the 2016 presidential election and possible impacts on the Supreme Court. Listen in as former Chiefs of Staff for Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Senator Al Franken come together to give their bipartisan 2018 outlook and predictions. My name is Drew Littman. For those of you who I haven't met, um, I've been in D.C. for nearly 30 years. I worked for Senator Barbara Boxer, um, helped run Hillary Clinton's Senate transition, went back to the Hill to be Al Franken's first Chief of Staff in the Senate, Best job in Washington, second only to being a policy director at Brownstein Hyatt, second best job in Washington, I have to say now. Uh, ran then Mayor Cory Booker's Senate transition, and at the very end of the Obama administration, went to the Department of Health and Human Services uh, to be senior counselor to Secretary Burwell. I went there really to do messaging around the Affordable Care Act. So that's my experience in a nutshell, and I'll turn us over to my colleague, Brian McGuire, to get started. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for having us. I think the bipartisan nature of the firm in Washington really works. And I think having been in a pretty partisan environment for the last 10 years, having I've been with Mitch McConnell uh, for the 10 years prior to coming to Brownstein Hyatt. And um, so I think it's, it's great personally to be able to go to a place where the Democrats and the Republicans actually get along really well in Washington. And I think, secondly, it's a real service to our clients because um, I've seen firsthand than in dealing with clients and being able to offer that um, real bipartisan mix is hugely helpful and I think differentiates, differentiates us significantly from a lot of other firms in D.C. So at the same time, it's also a little bit exotic to have a Republican and a Democrat on a panel these days, and um, particularly Senator Franken's former chief and Senator McConnell's former chief. Just a little bit about myself before I get started with the presentation. Um, as I said, I was with Leader McConnell for ten and a half years. I started with him when he was first elected minority leader in December of 2006 and um, had a number of senior communications jobs in his leadership office. The way this works is that the majority leader and the minority leader have two offices in Washington. They have what's called the personal office, which is devoted to the interests of their home state constituents. And then their leadership offices, which are dedicated to the um, other constituency that they have, which is the other senators who elect them every two years to their position. So I worked in the leadership office, which is sort of the national office for McConnell for eight years. And then when he was reelected in 2014, he asked me to be the chief of staff in his personal office. So I was focused on Kentucky interests and being a bridge between the leadership office and that office because frequently the leadership office forgets about some of the things that they need to remember about the home state, and so your job is to make sure they don't. So I did primarily communications for the first eight years, worked on a few Senate campaigns, worked at one point for the National Republican Senatorial Committee um, on detail, and um, worked um, in the personal office primarily on legislative and communication strategy and also as a political um, advisor to the senator for the outside groups. So we're going to give a little bit of a different take. We'll probably agree on a number of things and maybe differ on a couple of other things in talking about the midterms. Um, and just the first point I would make as a kind of cautionary note is that you'll probably feel like Harry Truman did about economists when we're done with this. At one point, he... Um, 
was frustrated because he had a lot of questions that he wanted answered about the economy. And every time he asked an economist to come into the Oval Office, somebody said, well, on the one hand, we think that, you know, this is a good fact um, set. And then on the, but on the other hand, we think that, you know, this could be a problem because of these factors. And this happened so frequently that he finally exclaimed, what I need is a one-handed economist. And so at the end of this, you may feel the same way because there's really two ways to look at every, everything that's going on right now. And I think one way to illustrate that is the fact that Trump's election in 2016 was entirely unexpected by everyone who gets paid to study these things. Um, the best people at this kind of predictive political work were pretty much all wrong. It was a true black swan event politically, and so many people didn't see it coming. And so when we talk about the factors leading into the midterms, there are a lot of historical um, there's a lot of historical data that, that shows us where we think this should go. Um, but again, because we have such an unusual um, set of circumstances in Washington right now, historically, it's simply impossible to predict how this is all going to shake out. But with that, why don't we start with the first slide. Generally, when people are thinking about midterm elections, and what we're talking about is the first election after a president is elected, they think about three things. The first is what is the president's approval rating? Historically, there's general, um, generally the president's approval rating is directly related to the success of his party in the following election. And um, the second thing we think about are what do the people who are running for office have to show for their last two years? Because frequently that's what people are voting on. Do we think these people deserve to be sent back or do they need to be fired? And so I know that when these members go back this August, that's what they're all thinking about. What do we have to sell? And if you're reading the headlines right now, you can sort of see fairly clearly that Republicans have um, a lot less to sell than they were hoping to sell when they went home in August. So that's a real liability, candidly, for Republicans right now. And we could talk about tax reform later, but there is a school of thought that says tax reform is more likely despite all of the obvious challenges because of the failure of health care repeal and replace. The political imperative to do tax reform is so great right now because of the failure to do anything on health care that anyone who has any sense of their own political interests will know that they need to do this. It would be the one big thing that they could show to the voters next November when they go, go back to the voting booth. The third um, variable here that I think is important is party unity. Is, is everybody sort of pulling in the same direction? We saw in a couple of elections since 2010, at least in the Senate, we saw this very vividly, a situation where primary candidates ended up winning in races that we didn't think that they could, you know, pull out against the Democrat incumbent. And um, so in 2010 alone in the Senate, we ended up picking up six seats, which was a big number, but we could have very easily picked up nine if we had different primary candidates in, in three states in particular, Nevada, Colorado, and Delaware. Um, so that was a condition that... Um, that persisted in the following election. And then in 2014, Leader McConnell, I remember seeing this very closely, decided um, that we weren't going to let that happen again. And ever since, he's made it a personal mission to make sure that primary candidates 
um, who can't win in a general election don't make it to the general election. So he gets a fair amount of tension every election cycle by going after people he doesn't think can win in the general. And um, he's very unapologetic about that. <clears throat> You're seeing it play out at the moment in Alabama. There's a heated primary there. The incumbent is a guy named Luther Strange. And he has a few primary opponents. And McConnell has been very um, candid about the fact that he doesn't want any of those other primary opponents to win because he thinks that they risk losing the seat. So presidential approval. Right now, Trump is about 37 percent, which sends shivers up the spines of every Republican in Washington. 37 percent is not a number that um, bodes well for Republicans in either the House or the Senate. Um, the other side of that, obviously, is that he was at 36 percent when he won the election in November. So... <laughs> The conventional wisdom is 37% is not a sustainable number, and there's no way Republicans can hold on to the House, at least, with a president at that, with that level. But, you know, if you, if you look at what happened in November, nobody predicted that he would have won at 36%. Um, just by way of comparison, Barry Goldwater was at 43% on Election Day in 1964, and he lost 54 states. So <laughs> Trump looks a lot worse than Goldwater did in 1964, but he won, and he won decisively. So that just gives you some sense of how different this past election cycle was and how limited our ability to predict the midterm is. Um, what we've got around there are where Clinton, Bush, and Obama were at similar points after their first election. And just to focus on another um, President, oh, President Obama, he was at 56%, which is solid, just before the 2010 midterm election. And you might remember that the Republicans gained 64 seats in the House of Representatives, which was a historically high number. And then, as I said, we gained um, six in the Senate. It could have, could have gotten nine. But um, So again, in Obama's case, he withstood the drag on his party generally, as he frequently did, in his eight years in office, he was always more popular than um, other Democrats running with him. And you can see that pretty clearly here. A few other factors I'll just briefly touch on. Looking ahead, these are some things that people think about. Split ticket voters. Generally in a midterm, you have at least 10% fewer people going out to the polls than you would in a presidential election, frequently even less than that. The sort of complexion of those voters is, is significantly different. You get an older population of voters frequently um, voting in the midterms than you do in the, in the um, general election every four years. Um, so that would presumably favor Trump in some ways in some states. That's something people are thinking about, though if you look at the polls that came out in the last couple of days, there's a growing body of evidence to suggest that he's really eroding his support among Republicans, especially in the states that he needs to win. Um, and that Republicans are hoping to pick up. His approval in states he won is still relatively high among demographics he needs to win, but again, that number appears to be eroding in a lot of significant ways in a lot of those states. There are 10 states, by the way, that Republicans are defending that Trump won. And those numbers have started to erode, particularly in southern states that he won. Alabama has shown the greatest erosion. Red state voters impervious to popular media narratives. 
I don't know what the bubble looks like in Denver, but in Washington, it's, it's a very real thing. If you were in Washington, you'd think that the only thing anybody cared about were, was something having to do with Russia. It's all anybody talks about. You go up to any reporter on Capitol Hill, it's all they want to talk about. Um, Gallup poll shows that the percentage of voters, and we have a slide on this later, that actually think Russia is the most important issue is 1% which is statistically insignificant. People don't care about it. People still care most about the economy, and they care increasingly about health care. And interestingly, on the economy, Trump's numbers have actually improved in the last several weeks. So you see a kind of disconnect between his favorability and um, the way people feel about the economy. So that, again, is something that sort of helps him looking ahead to the midterms. I'm going to hand it over to um, Drew here to talk about the House map in particular heading into the, the midterms, which, um, as this slide suggests, slightly favors Democrats. Thanks, Brian. The, the House map, you know, as a liberal Democrat, I'm always looking for evidence that the next cycle is going to be a great one for the Democrats. But, but the House map um, almost always favors the out party, simply because the party that has the most seats has been winning the most marginal seats and are almost always going to give some of those back. I'm going to skip one slide here and go to my fact-based slide. Someone observed once that I write PowerPoint slides like an English major, which I do. So a lot of factual information here. But the first thing you need to know is that the Democrats need 24 seats to flip control of the House. That fits neatly with the number of seats held by Republicans in congressional districts that Hillary won in 2016. Those are the marginal seats Democrats will look at first. You do see, however, that the vast majority of Republicans won by 10 points or more. And parenthetically, when people talk about the consequences, for example, of Trump's low approval rating for a typical House member, a Republican member of the House, in no scenario will it affect more than 20 percent of them. I mean, 20 percent of them would be a heck of a lot. 80 percent are almost certain to get reelected in any circumstances. Um, What you see is that the president's party's share of the vote typically declines sharply in midterms and that the president's party tends to get beaten in midterms uh, very, very consistently. The average seat loss of 33 is high, more than enough to swing control of the House. Losses run higher when president's approval is not negative. That should be obvious, but just to attach a number to that, in midterms, when the president's favorable rating is below 50 percent, the average loss for his party is 40 seats net. Again, more than enough to shift control of the House. Having said that, we're, we're operating with relatively limited data sets, as Harry Truman's economists would say. There aren't that many. You get a House election every two years, which means you get a midterm only every four years. There just aren't that many samples, and the variables change a lot. The reason you can't depend on any of the numbers we've used so far, I believe, is that most House districts are more solidly Democratic or Republican than they were historically. They've, they've sorted out. Um, some of that is shifts in ideology. A lot of it is redistricting, with Republicans controlling redistricting uh, in more states than Democrats. Some of it is just geographic sorting. Increasingly, liberal-minded people tend to live in the same areas 
conservatively minded people tend to live in the same areas. So even if Democrats could take control of redistricting, they wouldn't automatically see a huge shift in seats. So there are uh, new variables at play that suggest to me that Democrats, certainly Democrats will have a net gain. I don't think anyone doubts that. But that net gain would be smaller than we would have expected based on historic trends. I will also say one thing about President Trump's approval rating of 37 percent that Brian mentioned. One of the things that's different about politics today is that everybody's favorable ratings are lower than they used to be. With the proliferation of 24-hour news and Internet uh, information, some of it news, some of it not, there's just more criticism out there all the time. So approval ratings the ceiling for approval ratings is lower. I certainly don't think someone can get reelected with a 37% approval rating, but if Trump were running for reelection, and I think that's quite hypothetical, what he would be looking to do is probably not to raise his favorable rating to 50%, which he might have tried decades ago. He'll be trying to lower his opponent's approval rating below 37%. And that's been an effective strategy in some Senate races, for example, where candidates just trying to drive each other down. Just to reinforce Drew's point, um, a a frequent strategy politically, and this is one that Trump used to great effect in his presidential run, is to ask the voters or to make sure the voters like the opponent less than they like you. And so even if they don't like you, you there are ways to make sure that they like your opponent less. And I've been involved in many Senate campaigns where that was generally a strategy. You, you've sort of hit a ceiling and you realize that you can't get people to like you any more than they currently do, but you can vilify your opponent <laughs> significantly enough that they end up finding them completely unacceptable, which is, I think, what happened in a lot of states. Well, and I think it's November. what happened in the presidential. I, yeah. think, I think Trump had a ceiling, as Brian indicated. His, unfa- his favorables were never high. He sought uh, to lower Hillary Clinton's favorables and did that very successfully. I note at the bottom of the slide that Mike Kaufman's seat is a close is a toss up. I think it's the only one in Colorado. Um, One question that I've been asked about in TV appearances recently is what does it signify that Democrats keep losing these special elections? The media reports that there's greater enthusiasm for Democrats than Republicans, but Democrats are not counting a California special. Democrats are, are 0 for 5. So the slide I've put up there shows you how much higher uh, Democratic participation is than would otherwise be expected. From a Democratic point of view, these results are sensational. There's very high turnout, way beyond what you would expect in all of these specials. Keep in mind that when it comes to specials in a president's, uh, the first year of a president's term, they exist mainly because the president is pulling people out of congressional seats to serve in his administration. Who does the president take? Typically, the president takes people whose views are consistent with his or complementary to his, which means in Trump's case, he's taking people from very conservative House districts to serve in his cabinet. In other words, he's handpicking the House races, the House specials in which Democrats have to compete. It's not surprising that Democrats are not winning those races. When um, President Obama was first in office 2009 to the first half of 2010, 
I think Democrats won the first seven House specials. And as Brian points out, that was not an indicator of anything. They got wiped out in the 2010 midterm. But again, those specials were fought on ground more favorable to Democrats. Um, state specials, there are more state specials, so the sample is bigger. And I'm sorry if the, if the print is a little small there for you. But what the state specials do show is Democrats winning state races in Republican districts and Democrats um, greatly outperforming historic trends. This chart doesn't include the two most recent state specials, both of which took place in Oklahoma. Those were both Republican seats. One of them had been a Republican seat since sometime in the 80s. Democrats won both of those seats. So what you do see is, is what I would consider hard evidence that Democratic turnout is stronger. To me, as a liberal Democrat, that's a heartening sign. I would not assume that it tells us what's going to happen in the midterm. There's just too much time between now and then. This um, is another way of measuring enthusiasm on the Democratic side. It's the number of House challengers who have raised $5,000 or more as of June 30th. Uh, federal candidates report their fundraising quarterly. So June 30th, uh, that June 30th deadline is the deadline for the end of second quarter, the most recent fundraising reports we would have. And as you can see from the blue bar of 2017, Democratic, uh, the Democrats have many, many, many more realistic uh, challengers or contenders than they have in past cycles. Republicans have slightly fewer. So this is taken, at least on the D side, as a sign of enthusiasm on the part of the Democrats. So just to reiterate with an illustration, um, the Senate on paper looks like a really good map for Republicans right now. We are defending um, almost entirely seats that Trump won by huge margins. So if you look on paper, Republicans should be feeling pretty good about their chances. But if you look at the last cycle, Democrats felt pretty good about their chances, too, because the map looked almost as good for them as it does for us going into 18. So people who remember 2016 and um, how good the map looked for Democrats aren't too optimistic about the map this year, particularly given the president's approval rating. And I think what Republicans are hoping for is that the president's approval rating starts to tick up a little bit so that they can at least hold on to what they have. Um, there is a you know, very real potential, I think, that we end up being in a, in a defensive posture if his numbers remain where they are and states that were defending Nevada um, in particular and Arizona could end up being a kind of firewall for Republicans, um, with Jeff Flake and Dean Heller being the two people who keep us from losing the majority. That's a kind of pessimistic take on the map. But, you know, I think people who've done this for a while learn not to fall in love with the map. It's easy to look at it and to just feel good. And, um, you know, there there's a good reason if, if depending on who you ask, some people are optimistic, but I tend to be pessimistic about these things. So I think that, um, this is, is not a great, as great a map as it appears for Republicans. Um, <clears throat> however, this graph here to me illustrates a real problem the Democrats have, which is that Trump won one-third, virtually one-third of all the counties that Obama won twice in 2016. Hillary, on the other hand, only picked up 13 of the seats that President Obama never won. 
So what that says to me is that she had almost no crossover appeal to Republicans, whereas Trump had significant crossover appeal um, among Democratic voters, reliable Democrat voters in presidential elections. And this is the thing that Democrats have been sort of wringing their hands about um, ever since. How do we reach out to these voters that voted for President Obama twice, but that Trump picked up? And I'm sure Drew has been part of those private conversations. Part of the hand-wringing. Yeah, part of the hand-wringing. And um, publicly, you can see Chuck Schumer, among others, trying to figure out ways to appeal to these voters. You might have noticed he came out with what he called a better plan a few weeks ago that was squarely directed at these 209 counties and people in those counties. And we'll see whether it has any effect. But that, I think, is the biggest challenge that Democrats face in um, capitalizing on the opportunities that they have in this midterm. Back to this earlier point, the the voters, um, according to Gallup, don't care at all about Russia. And so to the extent that Democrats continue to focus on these things, I think it presents a serious liability for them. To me, it wasn't a coincidence that after the special election in Georgia a couple of months ago, um, there was a lot less talk about Russia. I think a lot of Democrats, smart Democrats in Washington, realized that they had sort of overplayed their hand on that, and then they needed to tone it down a little bit. Some of them were probably looking at polls like this that suggested that there was a real risk of overreach there. I'd be interested in Drew's point of view on that, but that's my own view, and I think the Gallup poll suggests a potential problem. <coughs> Economic issues, as usual, continue to be the issue that people care most about. And again, despite Trump's really horrible um, approval rating right now. The fact that people are feeling pretty good about the economy is um, an encouraging sign for him and for Republicans. So as a Democrat, um, I was one of those Democrats who thought the 2016 map was great for Democrats. I was sure Democrats would take a majority in the Senate. And I hate looking at the 2018 map. There are 34 Senate seats up. Um, 25 of them are currently held by Democrats or the two independents who caucus with Democrats. It's very, very difficult to defend that many seats successfully. There are only nine Republican seats, uh, Republican-held seats that are up now. And if you look at the Dems and Trump states on that chart, you'll see that there are 10 Democrats running for re-election in states that, that Trump won. And, and except for Pennsylvania and Florida, uh, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Florida, he won those states by huge margins. Now, as it happens, the Democrats have very strong incumbents in those states. They're accustomed to running and winning in red states. And I don't think strong challengers have emerged in those states yet. But as a starting point, if you're a Democrat, this is very concerning. Um, on the other hand, there is no other hand. There's only one Republican senator running for re-election in a state Hillary Clinton won, and it's Dean Heller in Nevada, which is which is still sort of a purplish state. It's certainly not a, a blue state. If you read, if you followed the drama over health care reform votes in the Senate recently, you saw Dean Heller was at the center of it, and this is an illustration of why he is distinctly the most vulnerable. Republican senator. The second most vulnerable, as Brian suggested, appears to be Jeff Flake of Arizona, who coincidentally just published a book in which he distances himself from Donald Trump. So you can you, you can see that in the daily news, which senators think um, they have the most to worry about. 
When it comes to stakes, there's one accomplishment that Donald Trump cites over and over, legitimate accomplishment of his administration, and that's the appointment of Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court. Um, If you look at the chart behind me here, you see the ages of the justices. Um, I've been in a room with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She's wonderful, alert, funny, but physically she's an old-looking 84. Um, there, was a, there was a story in the press a few months ago about the most important personal trainer in Washington, and it's Ginsburg's <laughs> personal trainer. Um, it, it sounds a bit morbid, but, but a lot of that has been out there because there were Democrats pleading with her to resign uh, while, when there was a Democratic president. Justice Kennedy had been telling friends earlier this year that he was going to resign at the end of the court's term in June. Um, he, there was a, a wave of uh, former clerks and friends of his beseeching him to stay, and he did agree to stay at least for a year, but in interviewing future clerks has been telling them that he only intends to stay for a year. Now, again, as a Democrat, um, I'm praying that Kennedy stays a little longer than that, but he is the swing vote on the Supreme Court, and his succession would, would um, result, regardless of who's in control, in, in an apocalyptic fight in Washington. Um, Justice Breyer, also 78. Justice Thomas, 69, sometimes rumored to be considering retiring. But there's so much at stake in the, uh, in, in the Supreme Court, and there always seems to be. Consequences of a power shift, uh, three versions uh, going from the 2018 election to the 2020 election. The first is House only. Now, typically, when we look at the possibility of the House shifting, we look at the party that takes control. In this case, it would be the Democrats taking over committees. They will constitute a majority on each committee, and they will appoint the chairman of each committee. Typically, that function is seen as legislative. If Democrats do take control in 2018, then the function won't be so much legislative. It will be investigative. And the concern, I would think, for Republicans is that you suddenly would have 21 Democratic committee chairmen with subpoena power. Technically, it's possible that not all of them have, but most of them do have subpoena power. They can launch investigations into nearly any subject. And um, for a Republican president, life would become extremely difficult. Democrats haven't been quite as aggressive as Republicans in, in, in investigating presidents of the other party. But I was many years ago staff director of an investigative subcommittee when we had a Republican president and we found that we had not only few jurisdictional limits, but there's, been, there's no clear limit on Congress's subpoena power. So I think the limits, theoretical limits, would be tested if Democrats retook the House. And then, of course, uh, President Trump would have to deal with Democrats if he wanted to get legislation passed. So far, the president has not passed a major substantive initiative, not one that would have to go through Congress. His two biggest accomplishments are, again, Gorsuch, Senate only. Um, And the most important second one, not an accomplishment of his, really, but most important piece of legislation he signed was the Russia sanctions bill, which he signed um, unhappily. If Democrats were to take the House and Senate, they would start to force tough votes for Republicans, I believe, in both chambers to clarify political differences as we headed toward the 2020 cycle. I think the Democrats' highest legislative priority even if they assume Trump would veto a bill, would be to rewrite the Voting Rights Act. And I can talk about that in greater detail 
later. But when part of the Voting, Voting Rights Act was struck down by the Roberts Court a couple of years ago, it opened the door for all kinds of uh, voting restrictions that have had a disproportionate impact on likely Democratic voters. If Democrats were to take the House, the Senate, and the White House, then you'd see not only control of Supreme Court appointments, but I think senior payer health care um, would be debated vigorously, and I'm guessing voted on. I'll go further than that and say that for the 2020 Democratic presidential primaries, senior payer, single-payer health care will be something like the ante, the table stakes that you have to put up just to sit at the card table and play. I don't think any Democrat can get very far not supporting some form of single payer. doesn't mean I think it's a good idea. It doesn't mean that I think that the candidates who say they support it would actually want to enact it. I think it's going to be a prerequisite for primary support and certainly for online fundraising, which is increasingly important. Um, I think you'll see the revival of cap and trade. I think Democrats will try and work it into uh, reconciliation legislation so that it would pass with a bare majority. Um, and, and along the lines of my comment in the Voting Rights Act, I think you'll see elimination of state barriers to registration and an effort possibly to nationalize voter registration. Um, so I'll stop there with that parade of horribles for the Republican. Oh, sorry, one other thing. I, I noticed this when I was looking at 2014 midterm results. Um, if you look at, this, at these six states I've got up there, they're red or purple states. And what you see is that in most of the Senate races, uh, the Republicans slaughtered the Democrat. And yet, very liberal ballot propositions passed, especially minimum wage increases. Colorado, as you know, uh, fetal personhood uh, initiative lost by some 30 points. Um, Same-day voter registration in Montana also considered a very liberal proposal. What this suggests to me is that although people are more partisan than ever, they identify with parties in very specific ways, or they identify them with them culturally, they are not necessarily that partisan on issues on an issue-by-issue basis, which means from a Democratic point of view, there's room to peel away more of the consistent Republican voters by talking about issues in the right way. Um, for this slide, I'll just take you directly to the bottom line uh, because it reinforces something that Brian said earlier. In the 2016 election, nearly 7 million Obama voters voted for Trump, but less, fewer than 3 million Romney voters voted for Clinton. And, and that delta right there could explain the election results. Again, from a Democratic point of view, I think it offers some guidance on potential messaging because those will mostly be white working-class voters who flipped. Just in conclusion, I think um, building off what Drew just said, this is a serious challenge for Democrats to try to appeal to these voters, white working-class voters in particular. The Great Lakes region, where Trump did extremely well, has been trending toward Republicans for the last few cycles, and that's going to need to be a focus of the Democrats. Um, But the attractiveness of the candidate really does matter, and clearly... Um, Clinton was just not an appealing alternative to people. The frame in the last election was really, do we want to change? And what do we think of Hillary Clinton? What voters are going to be faced with in 2018 is, what do we think of Donald Trump? And that's really, I think, the 
thing that worries Republicans the most is that somebody with a 37 percent approval rating is going to be the issue on the ballot in 2018. And if that's the only issue and there's no alternative that you can make people like less, then um, it really, I think, on balance, spells trouble for Republicans in 2018. But if you look at the list of things that Drew says Democrats will do if they win, that to me sounds like the Democrat playbook for how to win in that environment, because all the things that Drew said Democrats will try to do, single-payer health care, cap-and-trade, um, flip the Supreme Court, will be the first thing Republicans go to when they try to convince people to vote for somebody um, on the Republican side. So um, Drew just handed us our playbook, and uh, we're going to be happy to use it. Yeah, I think it, it's sad from a Democratic point of view, but but I agree with you. Some of those issues are more salient to Republicans than Democrats. Republicans historically care a lot more about the Supreme Court. I'll just offer one uh, closing observation. The, the most important fact, I think, that's not in this deck, because we're focused on the coming election cycles, is that according to the Census Bureau, by 2044, the U.S. will be a, major, a majority-minority country, and you sort of see the future coming in Colorado, which means that the electorate is changing very fast. It's about two percentage points less white with each presidential election. So just over 60% white in the last presidential election. But in Reagan's last election, George H.W. Bush's first, probably over 80% white. Um, that means over time, changes in demographics means changes will mean changes in representation over time. And that's partly why you see these fights now over voter registration. Thanks, everybody. Thank you all. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.